God, we are thankful for another Sunday to be gathering as your people. Lord, I do pray as, uh, Lord, many burdens are represented in this room. Lord, many who are walking through hardships. Lord, I pray that you would help our focus to be on you today. Uh, Lord, more than anything, what we need is to see you, to view you correctly, uh, Lord, as you are described in your word. So Lord, I pray that you'd use this passage to continue to shape how we view you, Lord, that we might respond in worship. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today, it seems as though many people want God in some way. Now, they may call it something different than God. They may call it the higher power or positive vibes or the big man upstairs or the divine. Uh, The the self-proclaimed, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, is on the rise and has been for some time. The problem is not that many people want God or they want uh, the spiritual, is that many people want God uh, on their own terms. Uh, It's like that friend who will only hang out with you if it perfectly fits with their schedule and it's the activity of their choice, or the coworker who will only help you out if it suits uh, their purposes. I think all of us are susceptible to wanting God but wanting God on our own terms. I think underneath this, what tends to drive this tendency can be traced back to how one views God and how one understands God. In other other words, the way that we view God tends to determine the way that we relate with God, how we experience God, and how we interact with Him. Which is why I think A.W. Tozer uh, said it this way, that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. I think that's so true. And it really begs the question, how do you view God this morning? When I say the word God, what what comes into your mind? What what are some of the first words or characteristics that that jump into your mind when you think about God? My experience, what's far too common, is that many people take one characteristic about God, usually their favorite characteristic about God, and it tends to shape their entire view of who he is in a very imbalanced way. Let me give you a couple of examples and tell you why this matters to our chapter from 1 Samuel 5. Uh, one, one example is the vending machine God. Now, again, we don't, we don't call God by these titles, but the way that we interact with him, okay, I think, fits the description. The, the vending machine God basically believes that if you press the right spiritual buttons, then God's going to give you a blessing. You go to church, you read your Bible, you pray, and God's going to give you what you want. Uh, you may even call this the, the cosmic genie God. You, you rub the spiritual lamp just the right way. He's going to come out and he's going to give you three wishes. Right? Some people view God that way and interact with him uh, as well. Another way is to view God as the waiter, where you're at a restaurant, you're with somebody. The whole focus is not really on the waiter. It's upon you and the person that you're with enjoying a great evening. That you really only bother the waiter if you need something or if you need something fixed, you need a refill or your food is too cold, but really the focus is upon you and having the best possible evening. Another way that we tend to, to view God is we kind of view him as the drill sergeant, where he gives the commands and you are to obey those commands. And if you don't, something bad will happen. 
Drill Sergeant doesn't really care about you. All he cares about is your performance. Another way we tend to view God is the coach. He's the, the motivational voice in your life. So if you're down or if you're going through a difficult time, oh, just turn to God. He'll give you a nice pep talk for you to stay positive. Another way is the, the desperate ex-boyfriend, where we tend to think, man, God is so desperate to having us in his life that he'll do anything for us to say yes to him, that he cannot live without us. There's all kinds of ways that we tend to view God that really determines how we interact, how we relate with him. But again, these characteristics, we should pick one that we love the most and we overemphasize it, almost make a caricature out of who God is that deeply impacts our experience of God. I think this is important to to recognize our own tendencies in our own lives, how we might do something similar. But I think it's also helpful to understand that the Philistines and the Israelites in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel and chapter 5, I think, are doing something very, very similar. They're just not identifying how they're taking a characteristic of God and overemphasizing it to the point where it's impacting how they're relating with the Lord. I think one of the main takeaways from this section in, in 1 Samuel is that we cannot have God on our own terms. It must be on God's terms. God cannot be manipulated. He cannot be controlled or confined. And if you think that you can, well, you're not viewing God correctly. That's really the main idea I want to unpack for us as we move through this passage this morning. Let's jump in and looking at the first couple of verses, really picking up where we left off at the end of chapter 4. Verse 1 reiterates the fact that the sacred Ark of the Covenant has been captured by the Philistines. They brought it from Ebenezer all the way to Ashdod, which was some 30 miles away. And this first verse of chapter 5 is the third consecutive verse that states that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. It's really impossible for us to exaggerate how important the Ark of the Covenant was to God's people. We, we saw this a couple weeks ago, but the Ark of the Covenant very much represented and embodied both God's presence and God's power uh, among God's people. And now it's gone. Uh, the Philistines continue to wreak havoc upon God's people. They've been doing this for several, several decades up until this point. They've been at constant war with them. You can uh, read the book of just, just Judges to get the history lesson uh, about kind of their relationship with one another. The Philistines, though, consisted of five main cities, each with their own lord or sovereign. Now, Ashdod was uh, located, it was the most centrally located of the five cities, again, some 30 miles southwest from Ebenezer. And what's interesting, I'm sure this popped out to you, it's so interesting that the Philistines didn't just destroy the Ark of the Covenant. It's so interesting that they decide to to keep it uh, for themselves. You might wonder, well, why is that the case? Well, this very much aligned with their form of religious syncretism that was so common during this day. This belief that there wasn't just one God, there were actually many gods. And we want to try to harness the power of all of the gods. And so we're going to try to collect as many idols as possible. So what would happen during this time period is after a, a military victory, they would take the other nation's idol or the, uh, the kind of the, the representation, the religious icon, and they would take it back with them as a type of war trophy. Again, very common practice in the ancient 
world because capturing an idol symbolically meant gaining the power of the enemy's God, and also it signified the defeat of that particular God. And that's exactly what they do. They take the Ark of the Covenant representing Yahweh, the God of Israel, and they take it into the house or the temple of their main god, Dagon. Dagon was thought to have been associated with fertility and and vegetation, and he really was their main god. I'm sure throughout the Old Testament you're familiar with the god Baal. Well, Dagon is the father of Baal. And so for them, this move here, it basically represented that the Philistines were not just uh, superior to Israel, but Dagon was superior to Yahweh. This is a, a theological statement that they are trying to make, is that Dagon is more supreme over Yahweh. <clears throat> you can even notice these first couple lines in, in chapter 5, just how central the Philistines are portrays them as the the main subject of every one of these verbs. It's they that captured, they who brought, they who took, they who set up. Just notice how the scene is being painted here. It's the Philistines who are in control. It's the Philistines who have all of the power. And yet, all of that is about to change. What we see next is that the God of Israel, Yahweh, cannot be controlled He cannot be suppressed. He will not allow anyone to be used for their own agenda or to take him on their own terms. Notice what happens. Something very bizarre occurs in between verses 2 and 3. Verse 2, as we've already noted, that they set up the Ark of the Covenant representing Yahweh, but they set him up as if he's in captivity to Dagon. But then the next morning, the people of Ashad come into the temple and something unbelievable happened. They found Dagon, their, their superior, all-powerful God, who has fallen face down on the ground before the Ark of the Covenant. Now imagine this. Like, like the people of, uh, of Ashdod here truly believe that Dagon is more superior and more powerful, and yet they walk in And it's their God that's in a worshipful posture, bowing down to the Ark of the Covenant representing Yahweh. In verse 3, when you read it, it's almost comical. You almost want to laugh out loud at what they do here, that old old poor Dagon has fallen down, and and he needs a little bit of a boost. He needs a, a hand from the created in order to get him back up on his seat. In verse 4, after they, after they kind of put him back into place, verse 4, something even crazier happens. They leave, and the next morning they come back, and Dagon has fallen down again. He's again in this worshipful posture, but not only that, his head, which represented wisdom, and his hands, which represented power, have been cut off. He has been dismembered, or if you like, Dagon is getting the godness knocked out of him. He is headless, handless, and powerless. Dagon has been overthrown. It's interesting here that the people of Ashdod, they anticipated and expected to walk in the next morning to see the God of Israel defeated. And yet the defeated God of Israel was not there. He has risen. It's the God of Israel who is the victorious one. It's Dagon who has been defeated. 
I think what's also interesting here is that it's Dagon's hands that were cut off. You get a picture of how impotent, how weak his hands are, which sets up really a nice contrast in verses 6 through 12 to the, the powerful and active hand of Yahweh. Look, can we maybe just pause for a moment and reflect on the supremacy of our God? Just how powerful our God actually is, that unlike all of these false idols, these false gods who truly do not have power in and of themselves, God does not need a boost from his people. That it's God who we see throughout chapter 5 who is defeating the Philistines all by himself. There's really no mention, there's no involvement of the Israelites, of God's people. It's God who is securing the victory. It's amazing here just to see how God is, is self-sufficient. He's self-existent. He is all-powerful. He's completely sovereign over all people, all things, all false idols and false gods. And in this scene, God is, is flexing his might, if you will. And by doing so, he's making a statement, not only to the Philistines, but to the Israelites. He is saying, I cannot be controlled. I cannot be contained. I will not be worshiped only on your terms. I am God. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the creator and the sustainer of the universe. And I have all power and all authority. And what's so interesting here, it's another reminder for us that the God of the Bible does not need us. The God of the Bible is not dependent on us for anything. God did not create the universe and the oceans and the, and the mountains and the animals and all of the people because he was desperately lonely or lacking. He didn't create you because there was some deficiency in his character or, or to fill some kind of void. No, he is self-existent and self-sufficient. And look, that is really good news. That if God were dependent upon his creation, that would make him just like Dagon. That would make him no God at all. And yet what we see here is a God who is self-sufficient and self-existent, and he does not need us. Now, God wants us. He wants to be in a relationship with us, but he doesn't need us. Don't confuse the two. When you confuse the two, that will lead you into viewing God in the various ways that I mentioned in the introduction. Start viewing him as that cosmic vending machine or genie or, or coach. No, he doesn't need us, but he wants us. He's self-existent, self-sufficient, or as Paul puts in Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. We see God's power on display. But not only that, the Lord is not content in crushing and dismembering Dagon. Uh, the, the Lord goes on and he carries out his victory throughout the whole land of the Philistines. He goes from being in exile from the Israelites, but he turns that into a victory procession throughout enemy territory. Verse 6, we're told that the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. 
It's interesting, the phrase, the hand of the Lord, it shows up four different times in verses 6 through 11, and it does provide a stark contrast of God's heavy hand, God's active hand, God's powerful hand, to that of the hands of Dagon that were cut off. If you notice the word uh, heavy there, if you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at that, that word in the Hebrew, it is the same word for the word glory. If you remember the end of chapter 4, we have uh, one of Eli's wicked sons, Phineas. His wife gave birth and she names that son Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed, or where is the glory? Well, we see God's glory, it's active and it's seeking victory over his enemies. Just notice what happens in verses 6 through 12. This is amazing what we see God's hand do. The first thing we notice is that he, uh, he terrifies the people of Ashdod. He afflicts them with, with various tumors, and so much so that they want nothing to do with the Ark of the Covenant. They're all done with this. This, this war trophy that they, that they thought that was, was inferior to their, their god, Dagon, they are all done. So they basically have an emergency meeting with the five lords representing the five main cities of uh, the Philistines here. And in verse 8, they decide to take the ark to Gath. This is another one of the main five cities. This is uh, where Goliath is from. We'll get to know Goliath in a few chapters. It's just so interesting (laughs) that they're they're not willing at this point to give up their war trophy. So interesting. No no matter how much devastation that the Ark of the Covenant is causing here, they acknowledge Yahweh's power but they refuse to surrender to him. It's going to be one of the points I'll unpack in a couple of moments. But notice verse 9, the ark arrives at Gath, and something similar happens. Causes this great panic. More tumors break out upon the people there. And so they're like, no, no, we got to get this thing out of here. They're playing hot potato with the ark of the covenant at this point. They say, let's take it to another main city, Ekron. But according to verse 10, as soon as the people see the Ark of the Covenant coming, they freak out. They're like, no, 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 you're not taking this thing here to our place. And they call another emergency meeting. This time, there's very little discussion. They're just basically concluding, we've got to get the Ark of the Covenant out of our our territory and back to the people of God. It's quite amazing what happens here. The, The hand of the Lord was so heavy according to verse 11, displaying his glory caused a deathly panic that filled the whole land. And they cry out for help. I think that's one of the main takeaways is that it is a dangerous and terrifying thing to be in the hands of an angry God. The Philistines thought that they could tame God, that they could use his power for his own purposes according to their own plan and agenda. And what started out, what seemed as though that the Ark of the Covenant fell into the hands of the Philistines, what we're really finding out is that it is the Philistines who fell into the hands of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant only lasted seven months in the territory of the Philistines. And the whole time, God is executing his judgment upon the Philistines. This is what happens when you trifle with the holy things of God. You try to control him. You try to manipulate him. You try to use him and and try to use him for your own agenda and plan. You know, he is no vending machine. God is no waiter. He is no drill sergeant. He's no boyfriend. He is Yahweh, and there is none like him. Well, what do we do with a passage like this? (laughs) 
How do we apply 1 Samuel 5 to our own lives? Well, I see three, I think, clear implications as we uh, just consider how to apply what we find here. There are a couple of challenges, a couple of warnings I want to point out. The first one is do not confuse acknowledging God's power as being the same thing as surrendering to it. I think for me, that's one of the most confusing and alarming observations uh, from this chapter is not just the way that the Philistines experienced and saw God's power, but it's their response to seeing God's power in display. I mean, they saw God's power in some tangible ways. They cut off, cutting off the hands and the head of Dagon, their superior God, see these tumors, you know, breaking out. We see this panic that, that ensues throughout the whole land. That's amazing in and of itself, but their response to it, I think, is even more amazing. I think this serves as a warning for us that there is a difference between acknowledging God's power and actually surrendering to God's power. The Philistines saw God's power, but they struggled to give up the Ark of the Covenant and actually submit and surrender to Yahweh. Look, as application this morning, I wonder in what ways could you be doing the same thing? In what ways could you be acknowledging God's power, but not surrendering to it? In what ways do you believe that God can do anything and everything, but you're failing to actually live by God's power? Let me press this in a little bit more specifically. Let's say the kids are just going crazy in the house, right? It's chaotic. You feel absolutely overwhelmed. You're at the end of your line. And, and in those moments, like, where do you turn? Where do you go in those moments when you feel utterly, utterly zapped? Do you turn to God's unlimited power and sufficient grace? Or do you turn to something else? And look, if you have young kids in the family, that's like a daily battle, right? It feels like every day there's just chaos. So what do you rely upon? Do you turn to the Lord, like specifically and intentionally? Or do you think to yourself, well, no, another hour till bedtime. We can get through this. We got this. And you kind of turn to your own strength. Or you turn to something else to kind of numb you through those hard moments. Or what about when you go through temptation? Are you being tempted to sin? What do you turn to in those moments to, to resist the temptation and remain obedient to the Lord? Is it God and his power and grace? Or do you turn to something else? What about when work is stressful or you're battling anxiety and fear and, and intense loneliness? Do you, do you turn to God's unlimited power and grace or do you turn to something else? And I want to be clear, I... I'm not asking you if you believe that God is powerful. I'm not asking you if you believe that God can do anything and everything. Philistines believe that at this point. I'm asking you, are you depending and living and surrendering to God's power? Because if you're not, if you just acknowledge that God's powerful but not live by it, you're, you're no different than the Philistines. So do not confuse acknowledging God's power as being the same thing as surrendering to it. You might be wondering, well, what, is it, what does it look like practically to live and depend upon God's power? Well, this could probably be a sermon in and of itself, but let me give you three quick things right here briefly. Three things of what this means to live by God's power. It means turning, asking, and trusting. First, you actually turn to 
the Lord, right? There's an intentional, there's a purposeful turning away from yourself, turning away from any other type of source of power that could get you through that moment, and you are intentionally turning to God. Oftentimes, this is seen in prayer. Maybe it's a long prayer. Maybe it's a quick prayer, or you're reciting scripture. It may be powerful promise that you've hidden in your heart that, that you need to kind of claim in that moment. But I think living by God's power starts by turning to God. Secondly, there is an asking. You are actually asking God for help. And by asking, you are demonstrating that you're not relying upon yourself. You are relying upon God. And God has no shortage of any type of resource that you need. And so by asking God for strength or for wisdom or patience or power, you are demonstrating, God, I can't, but you can. So there's a turning and there's an asking. But thirdly, there is a trusting. You are trusting that God knows exactly what he is doing, that he has this sovereign plan over all things, and it doesn't even matter the results. Like this asking, this turning, asking, and trusting does not guarantee that the kids are going to start behaving all of a sudden. They're going to clean up their mess or the dishes are going to clean up themselves or, or that work and the issues at work are going to automatically be resolved. No, you're trusting God has the perfect plan. God sees infinitely better than you or I, and you will trust him that he's working out all things for your good and for his glory. You're going to trust him in those moments. And watch how God shows up in your life through the Holy Spirit, provides power and presence to be able to comfort and enable his people. Well, second, I think implication from this passage is that a healthy fear of the Lord is a prerequisite to truly knowing God. We spent a couple of minutes just unpacking, setting up this point. I, I think throughout 1 Samuel, one of the things that we have seen through these first five chapters is a flippancy among almost every single group or group of people toward the Lord. We have seen Eli and Eli's sons with their sin and the lack of discipline. We've seen flippancy among the Israelites, where even after they suffered a defeat in chapter 4, verse 2, instead of turning to the Lord, crying out for mercy, uh, confessing their sin, they turned to the Ark of the Covenant in this superstitious type of faith. I think we also see flippancy among the Philistines here, degrading the Ark of the Covenant, treating it as a, a war trophy and putting it into the house of Dagon. All throughout these first couple of chapters, there is very little reverence for God, very little healthy fear of God. There's no admiration for God. And yeah, there's panic at the end of chapter five, but that's only after God uses extreme measure with these tumors Look, my assessment of what's going on here is that surely the Philistines and, and, and perhaps even the, the Israelites are struggling to truly know God on God's terms. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 12, that was the, the main accusation that was said about Eli's wicked sons, that they're doing all of these things because, chapter 2, verse 12, they did not know the Lord. And that is a theme that's going to continue to grow all throughout 1 Samuel, this idea of truly knowing the Lord on his terms. And I think one of the reasons why there's very little knowledge, true knowledge of the Lord, is because there is very little fear of God, healthy 
fear of the Lord. See, what's really fascinating about 1 Samuel 5 here are the similarities that exist between what the Philistines experienced and what the Egyptians experienced in Exodus, the time of, of, of Moses. It's so interesting, the link here that many scholars have highlighted that what the Philistines experienced, they were plagued by all of these afflictions, these tumors, very similar to the 10 plagues that the Egyptians experienced in the time of Moses. Even chapter 4, verse 10, the, the Philistines make mention of the plagues in Egypt. They, they heard rumors and hearsay of Yahweh and the God of Israel, and now they are experiencing something similar firsthand in chapter 5. But why? Why is there such a similarity here, such a, a link of what's happening here? Was God just doing this to, to get revenge upon his enemies because they stole the Ark of the Covenant? Well, maybe secondarily, but I think primarily what God is doing is he's trying to bring an experiential knowledge of who he actually is among the Philistines and also the Israelites. And I think you see this because of God's motivation for the 10 plagues at the time of the Egyptians in the book of Exodus. I know we're not in Exodus right now, but maybe you never noticed this, but if you trace God's motivation for all of these plagues, for all of his mighty acts, you can see line after line after line. He's doing this so that they may know who he actually is, that he is Yahweh, that there is only one living and victorious God. The purpose was revelation. And I think when you get to 1 Samuel 5, these tumors, the affliction that was plaguing the Philistines, I think the, the same motivation exists there. God wants to be known, but he wants to be known on his own terms. And, and for the Philistines, all they had were rumors. All they had was hearsay. God's own people, the Israelites, were struggling to know him. And so he flexes his might and his power so that he can be truly known. I think that's a good reminder for us as we think about why does God do things? Why does God allow things in our own lives? There's all kinds of reasons, but you can take this to the bank. God wants you to know him deeply. God wants you not to settle for the, the type of knowledge that you have for him, however deep, however superficial. He wants you to go deeper and deeper and deeper, to avoid those caricatures, to avoid taking one characteristic about how you see God, so there are various characteristics. You're growing, and your knowledge of all these attributes and all these characteristics of who he is so that they can respond in worship. But here's the challenge. The challenge is that according to the Bible, true knowledge of God is always coupled and corresponds with a healthy fear of the Lord. You cannot know God without having a reverent, healthy fear of him. You think about Proverbs chapter 2, verse 5. It says, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, you might argue, well, man, it seems like the Philistines are in fear. You get to verse 11 and 12, there's a deathly panic. Well, there are different kinds of fear. There's a healthy fear of the Lord, and there's an unhealthy fear of the Lord. A healthy fear of the Lord results in worship and surrender. 
An unhealthy fear of the Lord often results in panic and just continuing to live a self-sufficient life. And so there's a difference here. I think the gospel makes all the difference in the world. But I was reflecting on this and, and just how very little Christianity today talks about having this healthy fear of God. There's such an emphasis on God's love, God's compassion, God's care, God's patience, but there's very little about having a reverent and a type of healthy fear of God. I think this, this lost or, or devalued aspect in our relationship with God is deeply impacting how well we know God. Like if we truly believe in so many of these passages, Proverbs 2.5, Proverbs 1.7, Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowing him, and we don't have a healthy fear of God, then our knowledge of God will always be shallow. There's always going to be a ceiling on how well, on how deeply we know the God of the scriptures. And my biggest fear, my biggest concern is that so many of us are just content with that. We're just content with how much we know God. And you can see that by how, how much time you spend in God's word. You know, I, I can spend two minutes a day in this book, or I can go every other day. Or I can, it's, there's a contentment in your knowledge of Yahweh, and he's calling us to go deeper every day. He, he wants you to have a, a deeper understanding, of it, not on your terms, not how you want to view him, but who he actually is in the word of God. And I think that's part of the challenge here is, is cultivating this healthy fear of God. So maybe just to pause for a moment, do you have this healthy fear of God in your own life? In what ways are you practically cultivating this fear and this reverence of the Lord? You might be wondering, well, what does it look like to have a healthy fear of the Lord? I don't even know what that means. What does that look like? Well, let me give you three sure signs that you have a healthy fear of God. Number one, you're going to take sin seriously. It's one of the best signs that you have a healthy fear to take sin seriously. Secondly, you will avoid devaluing the holiness of God. In fact, when I say God, what you think about, he's the holy one. In him, there is no sin. There is no darkness at all. But thirdly, you have a reverent awe about God and how you talk to the Lord, how you sing to the Lord, and how you talk about the Lord. So he takes sin seriously. You emphasize the holiness of God, and you have a reverent awe of God. That demonstrates, yeah, you're growing and having this reverent awe, this reverent fear of the Lord. Look, God is not your homeboy. God is not your buddy. God is the Lord of hosts. He is the God Almighty. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the way that we cultivate this fear of the Lord is by seeing him as this holy and majestic God. And look, yes, yes, we can have intimacy with God. Yes and amen. Only through Jesus can we have that closeness and that intimacy with him. But look, don't mistake intimacy with flippancy. Don't mistake this closeness that we have with God so that you don't have to be reverent towards the Lord. Right, don't mistake the fact that God is love with, well, I guess God doesn't care about my sin. Right, don't, don't be fooled 
the fact that God is slow to become angry, he's quick to forgive, with the fact that there shouldn't be a little part of your heart that trembles when you pray and when you think and talk about the Lord. So look, here's, here's my encouragement for us. My, my encouragement is to spend less time uh, reading and, and meditating on passages like John 3.16 and more time on passages like Isaiah 6. Spend less time on passages like 1 John 4, 7 that says God is love and more time on Revelation chapter 4. And I'm not trying to create a false dichotomy, right? God is love, God's holiness, they are to get together and woven in deeper ways than we will ever understand. But from my experience, what we tend to meditate upon, what we tend to emphasize way more in an imbalanced way where it creates issues is that God, God is love, God's compassion, God's care, God's grace at the expense of very little time with the holiness of God, his justice and his wrath. And I think it is deeply impacting how well and how deep that we know God and fear him. And I do, I just wonder if that is the reason why many of us, we view him as that cosmic vending machine, that cosmic genie, that coach, that waiter, that, that desperate boyfriend who just can't live without us. And man, one of the, one of the most clear ways that your view of God is, is exposed is when you walk through suffering and hardship. It's one of the clearest ways. Look, we have to understand the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 9, 10, and find practical ways to cultivate that in our own lives. Well, thirdly and finally here, the last thing I want to point out is that God will not be defeated, will not be defeated. 1 Samuel 5 is about the victory of God over the Philistines with absolutely no involvement or mention of the, of the Israelites. It's quite amazing. It doesn't need his people. And the Philistines learned the hard way that defying God will end in defeat. But if you remember, chapter 5 didn't begin that way. Chapter 5 began as if God had been defeated. Ark of the Covenant is held in captivity to the temple and the house of Dagon, the, the more superior God and idol. And it seemed as if all had been lost. But then the morning came. And when the morning came, that's where the victory was on display that God had overthrown Dagon. Does that remind you of another story? Does that, does that remind you of another example of God being victorious where in the night it seemed like God was defeated, but then the next morning God brought the victory? Yeah, there should be another story as we're reading 1 Samuel 5 of God who defeated our greatest enemy and secured the greatest victory at the cross of Calvary in the empty tomb. And the stories are so similar. Like 1 Samuel 5, at the night, it looked as if God had been defeated. Well, so too, it looked as if God had been defeated 2,000 years ago when Jesus, the Son of God, is dying on the cross, that he died like God died paying for the sins of his people, that he took your place, he paid our penalty, and he died, and it seemed like all was lost. It seemed as though God had been defeated. It seemed as though that the ark was held in captivity and that God had been defeated, but then what happened? The next morning came, 
And when the morning came, that's where the victory happened, where God had overthrown Dagon. Well, same thing happened 2,000 years ago. Three days later, after Jesus died, on the morning, Resurrection Sunday, that morning, God had been victorious, raising Jesus from the dead. It's amazing what we find as we, as we think about God's power and God's might, that God will not be defeated. In fact, it's why Colossians 2.15 can say, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. That Jesus is the victorious one. And that's what this chapter is screaming, that God cannot be defeated that evil will not win in the end, that death has been conquered, that Satan has been defeated, and sin will not overthrow Jesus. That Jesus is so, so powerful that he can save anyone from their sin. He can save anyone, anyone who acknowledges their need for a savior, who admits their sin and their need for the forgiveness that is only made available through Jesus that he can save you. And if you're here, you haven't made that decision to cry out to Jesus to save you, to say, I'm a sinner, I'm in need of the forgiveness that's found in Jesus because of what he did on the cross for me and in his resurrection, man, we would love to talk to you about that. We would love for today to be the day of your salvation and for you to put your faith in this kind of God who has all power, all authority, who can save anyone from their sin. And if you want to have that conversation, I'll be down front. We'd love to talk to you. We've got people at the Next Steps table that would love to talk to you as well. But man, as we see this passage and as we're challenged in our own lives, look, you can have God, but you cannot have God on your own terms. And I think we're challenged here to, to consider, are you viewing God correctly? Are you viewing God biblically? And if you are, then let us do what the Philistines, what the Israelites did not do, and let us humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt us, casting all our anxieties upon him. Why? Because he cares for us. Let's pray together. God, we do stop and give you praise for being the all-powerful God. We thank you that there is nothing too hard for you to do. We thank you for this beautiful chapter of you flexing your might, you demonstrating the greatness of your name. And Lord, you do all these things because you want to be known. Lord, you want to be worshiped. You, you want your people to have a healthy fear of you because you are the holy and majestic God. So I pray that you would, you would help us to grow in our understanding and how we view you God, would you protect us? Would you help us to find a way to develop intimacy and closeness with you and yet not to be flippant with you? Lord, I pray that you'd help us to continue to be a people who love and worship your name. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.